Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Mary Mette. How's it going, Katie? I'm doing well. You? I'm doing well. Uh, any exciting events coming I up have, in your world? You know, I'm so glad you asked because uh, Brianna Joy Gray and I are going to be doing a live taping of the Katie Halper show on June 10th. And it's going to be great. It's going to be a great time. And it's going to be in New York City, of course, because that's where I'm based. Uh, Bree is based in D.C., but she's going to be coming in for this. And uh, make sure you come to that. It's going to be at uh, 40 Loisida Avenue. I think that's 40 uh, Avenue C between 3rd and 4th Street. It's at the. It's called the Francis Kite Club. Uh, it's actually, Aaron, where you did a, where we both were on a panel uh, that we moderated on the war in Ukraine. Same spot. Can I tell a funny story about that? Of course. I'd love that. Katie, you and I moderated this this event at that at the Orr Books venue in the Lower East Side. Right. Um, or the East Village, like wherever it is. And it, it was for a book, you know, by friend of the show, Medea Benjamin and her co-author, Nicholas Davies, about Ukraine. But there was an audience member who was really mad at me because he didn't think that he thought I was just there to, uh, I guess, ask questions. But I mean, like I, I was invited there. I thought to also speak along with Medea and her author. So there's a, right. this audience member came up to me while the event was happening, and he said, "He said, hey, listen, this as the event was going on, like this yeah. is like, he whispered, he's like, hey, listen, the next time you're invited to moderate an event, an event, you just moderate. You do not speak yourself. And so he was like chastising me." And uh, so I, but I was, so, so I got, tr- I got triggered. I was you offended. That he, triggered, yeah. I was offended that he thought that I was like, you know, hijacking this event where really right. I thought I, I was invited as one of the speakers equally. So I got up in his face too. And we had, we had a little, we had a little sh- like jostling as the event was going on. Yeah. Uh, so, that was pretty and funny. And it's funny if you're watching, like you can see it happen, I think on the video. Yeah. We're kind of up in each other's faces. And I was like, I was like, I, I said, I said, I was like, I was invited to speak as well. I, 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 for some reason, his like his him accusing me of that really bothered me. And so yeah, anyway, it did. Yeah, I yeah, wonder what childhood yeah. trauma that reactivated. I don't know, something, yeah, something came yeah. up. So anyway, maybe um, when you were a child actor making videos, commercials for you know war games, you were told that you were hogging the, the mic or something, <laughs> or hogging the screen, or reading other people's parts. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Was very yeah. deep there. In my content, yeah. but yeah, uh, that was uh, so. Anyway, that is a great spot where to hold an event at, and yeah. uh, people should come check it out. Yeah, it's Saturday, June tenth. Saturday, June tenth. Yeah, and once Aaron is done with his book and has whatever required, you know, decompression time, we will be doing a live taping of Useful Idiots. Do not okay. you worry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Coming soon in twenty twenty seven. Yeah. Right. No. 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 Yeah. It'll be. It'll be twenty twenty three. I'm confident. All right. Well, as always, to support us and get bonus content, you can find us at usefulidiots.locals.com and also, of course, at usefulidiots.substack.com. And you get great extended interviews and you also get access to our Thursday throwdown, which is a great time. We release, uh, we react to media clips that we watch that you don't have to. You also get on Substack a nice chat that we do on Tuesdays at noon. And we'll be bringing you more cool things at Locals as well. So you definitely want to join for those things, not just to support us, but to support yourselves, to give yourselves the gift of extra content. What is the slogan? Like, like the slogans, like think globally, act locally. Yeah. Well, you know, think globally, act on locals.com and find us I there. like that. Think yeah. global, act locals. 
There we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There we so go. So should we should we bring up our four basic food groups? Democrats suck, it. Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? All righty. So for Democrats suck, I got Democrats. And do I have a good Democrats for y'all? So uh, this is from the World Socialist website. Biden proposes $1 trillion in social spending cuts after announcing $375 million more for war in Ukraine. So basically... Uh, this is the debt ceiling negotiation. And because Biden is, uh, at the end of the day, someone who actually does indeed salivate over uh, cuts to social spending, we shouldn't be surprised that he's willing to do this. He could do other things like raise the debt ceiling, or he could do other things like uh, use the 14th Amendment, as, we, as we've discussed, uh, to raise the debt ceiling. But he won't do that. And he's the guy who likes, who always brags about how he can work the aisle with Republicans, and in this case, that's yeah, he can work across the aisle with Republicans to uh help destroy the uh social safety net. So, just another example of Dem sucking big time. And they've also basically admitted in recent days that oops, maybe we should have acted on this debt ceiling thing while we had control of both chambers of Congress, right? Oops, right, you know, sorry, our yeah, bad, oops, yeah are bad. I wonder why they didn't do that. Probably so that they could pretend that they were forced to make these cuts. Yeah. They, the well, Democrats love doing that. They do the, they, they pretend that things that they just don't want to do are things that they can't do. Exactly. Well, yeah. meanwhile, on the Republican side for Republicans suck, let's go to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who was asked, would you ever consider maybe just increasing taxes on the wealthy to help overcome the massive deficit that the U.S. is in? And this was his response. Are you open to considering a tax increase? On the no. Uh, no. Did, did you listen? Were you here earlier? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not, being, I'm not being a jerk. So look at him and the rest of his colleagues on the Republican side just scoff at the idea of, dare, of ever raising taxes on the wealthy when, of course, they presided over a major tax cut to the wealthy under Trump. And the idea of ever reversing that is they're all ha 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 ha. Meanwhile, 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 what they're trying to impose are things like work requirements on uh, Medicaid recipients, trying to force people who, you know, rely on government provided health care for low income people to, you know, to work and to show that they've worked when so many people who rely on these programs can't work uh, either because of some condition themselves or because there's just, you know, there's nothing available yeah. or they have family obligations that make it impossible. But I mean, so that's what they're really, that's what they're trying to push through. And the idea of ever raising taxes on the ultra wealthy, that, that just gets laughed off. Right. Because the Democrats and Republicans are basically united in their embrace of austerity and they enable each other. Really toxic relationship right there. Man yeah. Oh man. Man oh man. Yeah. They, they should go to counseling. They should go to counseling. Yeah. Except we're, and we're like the Americans are like the kids who are suffering because of their parents' dysfunctional relationship. Yeah. Well, let's impose a work requirement on the Republicans and the Democrats yeah. that they seek counseling uh, in order before they have the right to even be in government. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Um, All right. So for Isn't That Weird, we have a very important story. Let's just go to the videotape. Parents sending their teens on a quick grocery run to Publix on a golf cart. May just want to double check with them, make sure they bring their license with them before they head out the door. That's because if a new law is signed, it will require at least a learner's permit or license for anyone under 18. You're going to be driving a golf cart. All that's left is the governor to sign. And he hinted that could be soon. You're going to treat a a roadworthy golf cart like you would treat an automobile. And um, that's something that, that, that probably uh, makes sense when you're on uh, when you're on those th- those roads. I know there have been problems with it. I haven't made a final decision on it, but I would say that I'm favorably inclined. Well, guys, I have an update. He signed the bill. Wow. And so how do you feel about that, Katie? Do you think that's a you know responsible law or are the kids being oppressed in being them being denied, you know, free access, you know, freer access to a golf court? Uh, I think it's maybe not going far enough because anyone who is 18 or older must have a valid government issued ID. But that means that uh, you don't have to have a permit or a driver's license. Now, I don't know how to drive. I don't have my license. I do have a permit, but I don't think I should be allowed to drive a golf cart. Katie, are you by chance from uh, New York City? I am born and raised in New York City, yeah. Yeah, Which makes it a teeny bit more excusable, but not really that excusable. And the older I get, the more scared I get of getting behind a wheel. I get it. Yeah, the, but, only, uh, the, the, the only, like, or the vast majority of grown adults that I know who don't know how to drive all, all come from, from New, York New York City. City. Yeah. 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 But, you know, I think that they need to go farther because I, someone as a non driver, I don't trust mm. myself in a golf cart. Mm. And I'm older than 18. I know people may look, suggest otherwise, but I am actually older than 18. Breaking, I think they yeah. need to be more restrictive. And also, I think that, I think I'd go further, you know, Go-karts are not safe either. Mm -hmm. And I learned this the hard way because I drove around in a go-kart, I think like 10 years ago, and I bumped into someone. I think I kind of hurt his neck. Also, I fell at risk. But the problem was I didn't prepare to go on the go-karts and I was wearing a skirt. So I had to like pull the skirt down. So I was only driving one hand. With one hand. Wow. With one hand. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. So it's a miracle yeah. I didn't like hurt more people or go outside the the track or anything. So yeah. Well, first of all, Katie, I mean, I'm touched that you can find common ground with DeSantis here because I know yeah. you, how how much you disagree with him and some other things. So here's a case where actually you think he's not going far enough. Yeah. And cracking down on youth, uh, you know, golf cart driving. So right. that's you know that's a point of bipartisan common ground, which uh, I think true. is touching. Yeah. You got to, ha- you know, you got to maintain credibility. I made this point the other day with you. You kind of didn't disagree. You didn't totally agree, but I say you got to hand it to people who you disagree with to maintain credibility. I think no, you said, we talked about this with Jake Tapper and you said that you, I refuse. You, you refuse. Yeah. No. But, um, you can, pry, so I, you can pry a compliment to me from Jake Tapper from my cold dead hands. That, that's right, how I exactly. I, I do want to give Ron DeSantis, credit for that. I'll point out he still does not know how to wear a suit. He needs to go to a tailor. His suits mm. are always huge. The, t- the the jackets are huge. Uh, still, he still has that whiny voice that we don't like. And, and you know, his policy isn't good. And it's, it's way too uh, restrictive, except on this one thing. 
where he's not going far enough. He needs to require a driver's license for golf cars and also driver's licenses for go karts. You know, I just wonder as a side note, what percentage of the useful idiots audience do you think plays golf? So could find the story relatable. Do, like, is it like is it more than zero point one percent or zero point zero? Let us know in the comments. In the comments, if you play golf and this story is relatable to you, let us know. If you're a youth, especially if you're a young useful idiots audience yeah. member and you've been denied your right to drive a golf cart and you're angry about it, let us know. Let us know, yeah. yeah. You're probably gonna be angry with, with Katie because I'm an advocate for this program. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And if this is the last time watching the show accordingly, then thank you for being with us. And we understand why you no longer can support us because right. uh, people have their support. red lines. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 All right. What do we got for terrible, Aaron? All right. For terrible. I mean, let's just watch the video. Oh my God. So for people who are just listening and not watching, I envy the people just listening and not watching because that was hard to watch. Yeah, sorry. We should have put up a trigger warning. That was a priest slapping a crying baby and then trying to uh, embrace it. It's What can you say? That video is not helping the priesthood's reputation when it comes to their conduct towards young children. I'll just say that. Yeah. 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 I mean, that is what makes it worse than slapping it. And it looks like it's pre or post baptism. Mm -hmm. What makes it worse is that he then like brings him in and, and kind of cuddles him and hugs him as if he's comforting him from something that he didn't actually inflict. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> That's abusive. He needs to lose his priesthood license. He's got to go. Yeah, I mean, go. odds, yeah. are, odds are that if you're, if you're a priest, you mean, I mean, just based on history at this point, you probably should not be around get... children. Yeah. Oh, right. But, yeah. Uh, this, this priest especially definitely is no question. Well, so, odds are he's just going to get reshuffled to another place, else. to another so parish. He, yeah. he can slap a, he can have a baby yeah, somewhere so else. Slap again. Yeah. 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 Wow. All right. Well, those are your four basic food groups. We got a great, great interview coming up for you. Yes, we do. Uh, for today's interview, we're going to focus on Syria, where uh, there's been a huge shift where basically over U.S. protests, uh, Arab states have readmitted Syria to the Arab League. And this is a major milestone as Syria tries to recover from a, a catastrophic decade-long dirty war. Uh, and shows that you know the middle east is not following u.s orders because saudi arabia a very very close u.s ally is now turning to rapprochement re-engagement with a government that it tried to overthrow uh, saudi arabia is very involved in the effort to, to regime change syria so this is a big milestone and we're going to talk about that and many other issues affecting syria including crippling u.s sanctions uh, with two guests. Hekmat Abu Khader, who is a Syrian-American journalist, uh, he's just written a great article for The Gray Zone, which we'll link to. It's called Immiserated, Humiliated, Yet Resilient, How Syrians Survive America's Economic Siege. And Hekmat went around Syria and just profiled ordinary Syrians trying to cope with the impact of crippling U.S.-led sanctions. And also joining us is Kevork Almasanian. He is a political commentator uh, who publishes videos at the website Syriana Analysis. So let's go to Hekmat and Kevork on Syria.
Kevork and Hekma, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very us. much. Kevork, let me start with you. There's just been this dramatic scene where Assad flew in to the Arab League summit shortly after Syria was readmitted uh, for the first time since the uh, early stages of the Syria dirty war. There's this footage of uh, Assad meeting with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, MBS. And that's just very powerful because Saudi Arabia was a key part of this coalition led by the U.S. that tried to overthrow the Syrian government. So talk to us about the significance of Syria's return to the Arab League and uh, Assad personally going to attend this summit. Actually, there are three reasons why the Arab League uh, readmitted Syria again to the organization. And this was um, an effort uh, headed by Saudi Arabia and the UAE. First of all, the regime change war that started in 2011 up until, in my opinion, 2017, late 2017, has failed. Uh, secondly, uh, so they have to deal with uh, Assad and Syria as a de facto, uh, him as a de facto leader of Syria. They know that he's not uh, going anywhere. And uh, especially after Trump ended the regime change war in uh, 2017 under the covered operation Timber Sycamore. Secondly, uh, the Saudis and the Emirates, they have a different uh, vision now in the region, which is mostly based on um, economic uh, development. And it is now in their interest to stabilize the region because they have a vision for, for the future, which is um, uh, Saudi Arabia has a vision 2030 uh, for them, and they're preparing for the post-fuel era uh, in the region. And the third reason is because um, the Americans are quite busy uh, with the Ukraine war and um, the Saudis and the Emirates found alternative powers stepping in the region. And I'm um, specifically uh, talking about Russia and China. China brokered a deal between Iran and um, Saudi Arabia, something that nobody uh, saw coming. In my opinion, I, I was very surprised uh, by this deal. And I think this will have its positive repercussions on the entire region. Region. And also the Russian broker deal between Saudi Arabia and Syria. It was the Russians who were negotiating or mediating between Syria and Saudi Arabia since 2018. But this is very surreal, knowing that um, Saudi Arabia uh, at least um, uh, took charge of the uh, Syrian file or the regime change war in Syria between 2013 and 2018. And in 2013, when uh, Bandar bin Sultan came as the uh, head of the Saudi intelligence, he asked uh, the Arabic countries to allocate uh, $2 trillion to remove Bashar al-Assad from power. I'm not sure that they were able to collect $2 trillion, but the estimates are way more than $200 billion. And if we compare the size of Syria to the size of Ukraine and uh, how much the Americans spent in, in Ukraine nowadays, $160, $170 billion. Uh, and if you compare that to Syria, which is a small size, a very small country compared to Ukraine, we know that hundreds of thousands of tons of weapons were dumped in uh, on, uh, on the Syrian scene. And this has happened in cooperation between different regional countries. But there were two main military operational rooms, one in southern Turkey and one in uh, northern uh, Jordan. And all in all, um, the Saudis tried to assassinate Assad, and this was confessed by uh, the Qatari, uh, former Qatari foreign minister that they had a plan to assassinate Assad in 2013 when they tasked different so-called rebel groups uh, in, in the suburbs of Damascus to shower uh, Damascus with uh, unguided uh, rockets and missiles and create chaos, security chaos, and then attack on the presidential palace. Uh, so we know what could have happened if this was it successful. 
I just be clear, this came out in a leak from Edward Snowden in the NSA files, where the NSA had picked up intelligence that Saudi Arabia literally said to its proxies in Syria, light up Damascus, including attacking yeah. the airport. Yeah. And later, the former uh, uh, foreign minister of Qatar, Hamad bin Jassim, confessed this on TV, on the Qatari national TV, saying that this was the plan. And he was present during a meeting with uh, Bandar bin Sultan, and this was planned. But then uh, after MBS came to power, it seems there was a, some policy shift in regards to Syria, but mostly because the regime change war has failed. So they have to deal with Syria as, uh, as, a, as a de facto uh, present in the region. Who from Qatar admitted this? Sorry. Hamad bin Jassim, he was the former foreign minister of Qatar. And why did he admit this? Because there is um, a disagreement or between Saudi Arabia and Qatar, and the Saudis were blaming Qatar for every um, uh, turmoil that happened in the region. Yes, Qatar uh, uh, was the spearhead, I would say, for the Arab Spring, at, at least between 2011 and 2013. And when the Saudis started to blame Qatar publicly, he came out uh, and said that we have all the evidence and we have all the uh, recordings for, for this, so don't blame us alone. You be worked all together in this, and we we have the um, information, and I have the evidence, and I can show it when it's necessary. So here's a compilation of several Western leaders, very on message about Bashir al-Assad. Let's see what they had to say. He must go. Assad needs to go. Assad must go. Assad must go. Assad must go. We are still saying Assad has to go. Assad has to go. Assad has to go. And I'm confident that Assad will go. Assad must ultimately go. Our position on Assad has not changed, that he must go. Assad uh, must go. And Assad must go. Assad should go. Assad will still have to go. Assad is a war criminal and should go. Assad is on his way out. Bashar al-Assad is finished. Our goal and focus remains an end to uh, Assad's rule. So, well, what do you want us to do about Assad? Take him out? Well, um, uh, well, how, how are we going to do that? By fighting Assad, who turned out to be a lot tougher than she thought, and now she's going to say, oh, he loves Assad. The official explanation, of course, of why Assad must go, as John McCain said, is because he's a war criminal. What would you say the real, um, what do you say the opposition to Assad comes from? Why must he go? Yeah, I think um, the main reason is the foreign policy of uh, Syria. Um, it's not the mistakes that Bashar al-Assad committed, and there are plenty uh, during his reign, but the mistakes that he didn't commit, and especially when it comes to um, the uh, Iraq war, uh, the invasion of Lebanon and uh, uh, Libya. We have to remember that Syria uh, Syria supported the uh, resistance in Iraq, and the American generals do not forget that they lost hundreds of uh, officers and soldiers in Iraq because of the Syrian support. Syria supported Hezbollah, Hamas. They, uh, Syria sent them um, sophisticated weaponry. It was the first time in 2006 that uh, Israelis were surprised. They were caught in surprise in Lebanon that uh, Hezbollah has uh, anti-tank uh, rockets. And uh, then these weapons were delivered to Gaza. And the Hezbollah, they um, smuggled this weaponry through uh, the tunnels in Egypt to Gaza, to the Gaza Strip. In 2008, Hamas and Islamic Jihad, they used this weaponry. And in this last war um, between uh, Gaza and uh, uh, Israel, Israeli occupation forces, uh, Islamic Jihad, they fired a few missiles on Tel Aviv. 
and those are um, uh, Chinese technology, but they are made in Syria. So uh, all in all, in the region, uh, they wanted to take Assad out in order to remove the, I would say, the last uh, Arabic government and an army that supports the armed resistance against the Israeli occupation forces. That's the main reason for it. It's not uh, the United States doesn't have a strategic interest in removing Assad or uh, destroying Syria. It's it's about Israel, in my opinion. And uh, Assad was uh, negotiating or talking to the Israelis indirectly uh, several times. But his position is clear. It's the uh, Israel has to withdraw to the fourth of June, nineteen sixty-seven borders, and after and also uh, allow the Palestinians to go back to their homes. That means all the settlements must be dismantled. And before that, Syria is not ready to strike a deal with Israel. I think that's the main reason. And that explains why uh, when the war started in Syria and all of a sudden all these so-called NATO-backed rebel groups started attacking air defense uh, bases in Syria. Why would uh, rebel groups uh, destroy air defenses in Syria? It's about Israel. And now we see that Syria is trying to repair its air defenses, and that's why Israel is also striking all the time uh, any attempt to improve the uh, Syrian air defense systems. Yeah, I completely agree with Kevork. Syria has been for the longest time the crown jewel of the resistance, the the Levant, the crescent of resistance in the region, and uh, the United States foreign policy has never had issues with war criminals, quote unquote. They were the allies of Saddam Hussein for 10 years. They are still the allies of the Saudi uh, royal family. They're the allies of the Qatari royal families. So they've never had issues supporting, abetting war criminals. But this is a clear, uh, one of those clear missions where they ultimately failed to push through their own foreign policy. And that's why they, they, uh, they're vehemently now sanctioning the country and destroying it. Yeah, and when Syria is accused of war crimes, what gets left out of that accusation is that um, all of these allegations come in violence that occurred inside Syrian territory because the Syrian government was defending itself against the most well-funded insurgency, arguably in history. So if you don't want Syria to, to commit uh, atrocities, then don't funnel billions of dollars worth of weapons in their territory to arm fighters to overthrow the government. It's just pretty simple. That's going to happen. There's going to be violence when you're organizing a massive insurgency. And that totally gets left out of, of the conversation. Kevin, since you mentioned the issue of the Golan Heights, which Israel occupies, let's actually go to a clip of Trump, who was recently on his golf course. <laughs> he came across some um, Israelis or maybe just some Jewish voters, and he bragged to them that he gave the Golan Heights of Syria to Israel. Let's watch that clip. I mean, <laughs> this is this is this is electoral. Uh, he, he's just attracting uh, Jewish voices, right? In uh, in the United States, it was this in the United States or in the Golan Heights? It's in the United States, right? So it's yeah, meant oh, yeah. uh, for for internal message for to gain uh, votes in this regard, and it's very surreal, especially when we see now that the United States speaks about uh, a foreign invasion of an independent country in Ukraine and capturing territories there that is illegal according to international law uh, when. 
every single UN Security Council resolution uh, says clearly that uh, every sing- every inch of territory that Israel occupied after the 4th June of 1967 are uh, null and void, and they don't have an authority over the Golan Heights. And um, unfortunately, uh, the negotiations with Israel uh, are very, very difficult because uh, the approach of Hafez al-Assad was we have to negotiate collectively with Israel. That means Egypt, Jordan, and uh, Lebanon, and Syria. We, we all have borders with Israel. We have to negotiate as one uh, group with uh, Israel. But after the 1960, uh, 1973 war, uh, Anwar al-Sadat, he... Um, he, he had a different uh, vision uh, for the region and he kicked out the Soviet Union from his country and he allowed the Americans to come in and project their power over the region and hence he also struck the deal with Israel in 1978 and then the Jordanians joined the, joined the wagon uh, of, uh, of uh, peace between uh, brackets and in Lebanon nowadays were it not for Hezbollah, I would say Lebanon would also strike a deal with uh, with Israel. So Syria left alone. In 1973, when the war start, uh, erupted, at least the Saudis, uh, they minimized or stopped the uh, flow of oil to the to the Western countries in order to um, increase the prices and also to punish the Americans for giving an air bridge to Israel. Now, uh, if the Syrians, uh, the best case scenario for Syria, if there is a war between Syria and um, Israel, is that the Arabic countries won't fund Israel against Syria. That's the best case scenario, right? Uh, otherwise, Syria is left alone in this. And I don't think the balance of power is in favor of Syria. And it's uh, people ask why Syria is, isn't retaliating against uh, Israel directly. I mean, Syria uh, undergone 12 years of war. Half of its military are, is destroyed. The air defense cap, uh, ca- uh, capabilities are destroyed. And uh, Syria is a rational actor. People, like, of course, in the mainstream media, they try to portray Assad as if he's a, a monster, wakes up in the morning, he just puts his finger on the map and he decides to kill his own people. But it's not like that. Um, Syria is a very rational actor and they don't um, uh, destabilize the region and they don't initiate in such uh, aggressions on, on their neighboring countries. Yeah, in fact, they used to cooperate with the U.S. They they provided U.S. with intelligence um, after the Iraq War, and they even you know held on to prisoners and and subjected them to torture, like um, Mahar Arar. So there was an effort actually by Syria to cooperate, uh, but the U.S. instead rewarded Syria with a one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive, regime change wars in history. Um, Hekmat. You just came back from Syria and you wrote a report for the Gray Zone about it. It's called uh, Immiserated, Humiliated, Yet Resilient, How Syrians Survive America's Economic Siege. Syria, of course, is subjected to the harshest U.S. sanctions in the world. Talk to us about what you found when you went and and, and where you visited. Yeah. So uh, in general, I found, as I said, immiseration, a lot of desperation. Uh, But what I fundamentally found is that the Syrian people have realized that they are a cog in the game, but at the end of the game, they are playing the long, they are playing for the long run. So they know that they're on the right side. They know that they have to just suffer through and uh, that things will start to change in the region slowly. I visited Tartus, Latakia, Homs, and Aleppo. And throughout these major cities that once were booming hubs of industry, booming hubs of uh, proletariat uh, 
side by side folks living different, uh, sorry, not proletariat, but uh, pluritarian life of different re religions, different ethnicities, people living side by side. Uh, now they've been uh, diminished to shells of what they used to look like. Uh, the cities of Aleppo's are covered covered in soot of um, what you know what um, what are now uh, privatized form of electricity because the government can only afford to afford to uh, supply its citizens with four hours of electricity per day. So they're covered in soot from these ampere generation generator units around the city uh, for each neighborhood. Uh, people have to rely on government-provided smart card registries in order to get their basic needs, get their basic food, uh, their basic rations for gas to get their cars moving, to go to work. And uh, yeah, immiseration, the currency I mentioned in the report, has devalued um, incredibly, especially since the launch of the HR 31 Caesar uh, bill uh, against the Syrian people in 2019. Uh, the the Syrian pound now has been devalued to almost 9,000 Syrian pounds per dollar. Kevork and I remember a time when the Syrian dollar exchange, the Syrian pound exchanged for four, the 40 Syrian pounds exchanged for one dollar. So you can imagine how devastating that has become on the savings, on the livelihoods of uh, everyday Syrians who used to have a dignified life up until this war in 2011. So yeah, a lot of devastation. But at the end of the day, I've, I conclude the article with uh, showcasing some aspects of cultural life, how it's slowly regenerating, how there are cultural performances happening in, happening in the citadel of Aleppo, how churches are, are now vibrant hosts for classical music that's being attended by standing room, standing room only audiences. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, you can't deny that there's a sense of uh, hope in the country, but still, I mean, you have 90% of the population under the poverty line. I don't know how much hope that can sustain the everyday Syrian. So it's, uh, you know, read the article and, and see for yourself what the policies that are being enacted in your name as an American are doing to another population across the world. Actually, it's an act of sadism. Uh, also, Aaron said this uh, multiple times uh, by the American and successive uh, administrations when they failed in their foreign policy approach in Syria or goals. And now they're strangling the Syrian people for resisting uh, against this project. And to be honest with you guys, uh, before, before the Caesar Act, the people were able to see the enemy and they can identify the enemy. There are actual uh, tens of thousands of terrorists underground, and they can see there are uh, military hostilities between the Syrian army and these terrorists. So you, psychologically speaking, you can blame the terrorists for what is happening. And since 2000, like starting from 2008 till today, because the act, the hostilities are, are uh, on, on the minimum level, let's say, between the army and the terrorists, people cannot see the enemy anymore. It's an invisible enemy. And these sanctions are um, harming the major supplies of Syria, uh, the Syrian government that has to provide to the to the people. Like uh, lots of people do not know that 70% of the fuel in Syria now comes from Iran. 
And Iran has to do very long turn to come to Syria from the Mediterranean and all the way from the African Horn uh, sometimes. And Israel, Israel, uh, uh, they detonate, uh, they have detonated several Iranian tankers. And the Brit- Brits and the Americans, they hijacked several Iranian tankers. So it's like uh, they, they want the people to die in Syria so that the people rise against the government. And I would say, yes, Assad's popularity has become a little bit uh, less after 2018 because, as I mentioned, people want solutions. And in Syria, as much as you strangle the economy and you try to uh, um, slowly kill the people, this will give opportunity to the corrupted uh, people to use this opportunity in order to for them to provide, for example, electricity. Who is providing now in the black market to the people? Those are mafias, in my opinion. So the sanctions on Syria and, for example, the uh, the drug production now in uh, in Syria. Why why is this phenomenon uh, happening in Syria after 2017 and 2018? Because when you weaken the uh, central government and you weaken its uh, ca- uh, uh, ca- capability to provide to its people, non-state actors will thrive in the country. And this is mostly coming from uh, uh, warlords and uh, they have made lots of fortunes in Syria and they are exploiting this situation. So I would say sanctions on Syria are exaggerating the, uh, uh, the they are increasing the level of corruption in Syria, not the other way around, like uh, as the Americans claim in this regard. And and speaking of Israel's role, we actually have some footage um, that you included in your uh, article, Hikmat. If we could just take a look at that. So two weeks after the earthquake, um, you gotta t- uh, keep in mind that the earthquake had wrecked uh, Aleppo. Uh, the most populous city in uh, northern Syria, and had uh, destroyed a lot of infrastructure in Latakia, in the government of Aleppo, and killed 5,000 people within Syria, more, much more than 5,000. Israel strikes deep within Syria. And you have to understand that uh, they, tar- they say that they target uh, military forces or military installations, but in reality, they're bombing civilian neighborhoods. And they have done uh, about 400 sorties in the last two years. And uh, in the, as a result, in the last year, we, Syria has suffered about 50 casualties. And I will talk further about um, the Syrian army casualties and my own experience with one of them who lost uh, comrades in one of the strikes. And so this is a video that um, was posted by Dimitri Lascaris, who's a lawyer. And it's, uh, as you said, it's two weeks after the earthquake happened. And it's, in, it's, it's uh, this is what it looks like after Israel launched strikes on civilian areas of Damascus that killed at least 15 people, including two women. And this actual image, uh, this site that we're going to see in this video, is the citadel in the old city of Damascus, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. I 
it's so weird to see that video because it's this beautiful UNESCO site and it's this weird juxtaposition of a beautiful site and then wreckage. Yeah, so um, Israel has struck almost 300 times in the, uh, in, within Syria for the last two years. And they claim that they target only uh, military insula installations for Iran and Hezbollah. But in reality, they're A, targeting Syrian army, Syrian Arab army uh, soldiers, and they're targeting civilians. In this, uh, in this suite that I shared, 15 people died, two of them women, um, many of them civilian. And the, the thing that astounds uh, the everyday Syrian uh, is um, something that I experienced as I was having a conversation with a Syrian army Arab army, a veteran, when I was taking a bus from Homs to uh, Aleppo during my trip, uh, he explained to me that he lost a lot of his comrades fighting the scum of the earth, the ISIS, the Al-Qaeda affiliates in Syria, and ridding the world of these uh, jihadist fundamentalists. But the, the loss that hurt him the most and just grieved him the most is the loss of one of his comrades in Israeli strike. Because he realized that the, these strikes are sanctioned by the Western world. These strikes are sanctioned by this world that uh, the Syrian army has defended because the Syrian army made sure that these scum of the earth that came into Syria and fought and murdered and raped and, and ate hearts within the governors of Syria stayed in Syria and died in Syria. So they made sure that they did not go back to Paris. They did not go back to Berlin. They did not go back to Washington and London. But now this is how these Western capitals are repaying the Syrian Arab army. They were paying them by killing further more of them with with Western sanctioned Israeli strikes, in the in the pretext of uh, fighting against uh, Iranian militias. At the beginning of the war, uh, I remember in the first few weeks, uh, these so-called rebel groups they attacked uh, several um, military installations in the suburbs of Damascus. They were mostly uh, air defense systems. They destroyed them completely, and uh, several uh, Syrian uh, military scientists and engineers were assassinated in Damascus while they were walking out of their home. Uh, these are all, in my opinion, targeted attacks, and uh, they are clear. Israeli fingerprints uh, on them. Uh, but uh, after the regime change war failed, Israel accelerated its bombing of uh, Syria because Syria is trying to um, uh, bring advanced air defense systems. Um, Russia isn't interested in giving Syria the advanced air defense systems uh, or operating them because uh, they want to keep a balanced relationship with Israel. So it's Iran who is uh, supplying uh, advanced air defense systems now uh, to Syria, but in order to uh, uh, the air defense system, in when you bring it to Syria, you have to uh, network it with your old or Russian uh, air defense systems. You have to train them and uh, afterwards you can use them, right? And Israel, every time uh, Syria receives um, uh, let's say a shipment of uh, air defense systems. They try to destroy them before they are installed in their places, and uh, and uh, in the course of it, they kill Syrian army officers. And now, if you count the number of uh, military personnel, let's say uh, who died uh, by Israeli attacks, uh, the numbers are definitely. If it's ten, 
nine of them are Syrian army officers and one of them probably from Hezbollah or Iran. But we have to know something very important. Iran and Iran doesn't have a combat force in Syria. They don't have a fighting force. They have advisors and they are they have trainers in Syria. And they are there to advise the Syrian army on combating terrorism, but at the same time training them on, on this weaponry. And uh, Israel doesn't want Syria to have this uh, type of weaponry. And that's why they're striking uh, um, uh, in, in Syria. But also they're striking in residential areas because in their perception, uh, they think they are above a law, every law, of course, in the world, and they can just assassinate anyone they want. And sometimes with false intelligence information, sometimes they think that they're targeting someone who they think is important and they have a legitimacy to assassinate them somehow. And uh, then they bomb an entire uh, building and uh, 10 civilians die, in, uh, for example, and with complete disregard of the casualties or the collateral damage that can uh, cause in this regard. And I want to make a comparison. For example, imagine when you go to the media after every uh, uh, Israeli bombing, they say, oh, the Israelis are attacking Iranian affiliate groups or attacking uh, uh, military shipments, etc., etc., Okay, let's 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 uh, reverse this example and say, what if Syria starts bombing every military shipment that is coming to Israel, to the Haifa port? What if Syria starts assassinating uh, the CIA trainers or the uh, Pentagon trainers that uh, are for with hundreds in Israel, right? Like, does it really make any sense? Why is Israel, why Israel has the right to have its defensive weaponry, but Syria doesn't have that, that right? And the media is very complicit in this. And the reporting on Syria is very biased. And in a way that it, it, it I feel sick in my stomach when I read uh, the uh, reporting of the mainstream media on Syria, because uh, there are a few things. It's not only biased, but also dehumanizing. Syrians are not humans in their eyes. And especially if you live in government health area, if you die in an earthquake, uh, 5,000 people die. It's nothing for them because they live in an Assad uh, held areas. And if um, there are international organizations want to bring uh, aid and uh, relief aid to these uh, areas, then they lobby against it because they say, what do they say? They say Assad is going to steal the aid. I mean, this is so ridiculous on so many levels. Imagine that Assad is stealing a few cargoes of humanitarian aid. What is he going to do? Feed his son, his his daughter. What is he gonna do with a few cargoes of humanitarian aid? Is he gonna consolidate his regime with with humanitarian aid? So the journalists, the so-called experts on Syria, are also they they have blood on their hands, and they work in they're like a parallel intelligence apparatus, giving all sorts of uh, justifications and information to the intelligence apparatuses so that uh, these uh, criminal, uh, I would say, psychopaths in Washington and elsewhere around the world would continue in their policy. And I will not hesitate to name some of them, but uh, I, I'm not going to do that now on this show. But there are at, at least uh, at least 10 to 20 so-called experts on Syria. Their entire role is to... Um, um, <clears throat> to give justification for the U.S. first regime change war and secondly the sanctions on Syria, these people are—they have made a career out of Syria. Therefore, now when Syria goes back to the Arab League and we see that some winds of peace is uh, finally uh, hitting the region, 
and they go hysterical and you can see them on uh, Twitter and other social media platforms. And uh, they, if they are publishing one article per month, they're not publishing every week, every week because there is, uh, they have to lobby. These people are lobbyists and they work hand in hand with uh, intelligence apparatuses. And w- I mean, what's, how is it how is it possible for an expert on Syria to be exclusively picked, invited by the U.S. occupation forces to come and pay a visit to the areas that are occupied by the U.S. occupation forces in Syria? What are the odds that this person is not linked to the intelligence apparatuses in the West? So these people are, in my opinion, if in, in any fair word, they would be behind bars and. Um, they have caused a lots of damage and inflicted lots of pain upon the Syrian people. And we will never forget that. I mean, uh, we're Syrians. We've seen what happened on the ground in Syria. And we know who w- said what and who convinced who in the United States to continue. And now we have this uh, new act uh, that it is against the normalization of relations with the Assad regime and they criminalize the Washington uh, to normalize relations with the, with the, uh, Washington with Syria. I would say uh, when Assad visited uh, Moscow, uh, this was a few weeks ago, uh, he heard in Moscow uh, very clearly that uh, we, Syria shouldn't work on convincing the West to lift the sanctions. They're not going to do that anytime soon. So uh, we have to bet on a change in the um, international system, especially through the gate of Ukraine. And uh, when there is a, a parallel monetary system uh, in parallel to dollar, and uh, if the de-dollarization works, then all the sanctions of the United States will be uh, toothless. So that is what in Syria they are betting on but also now the support of the Gulf countries to reconstruct the country. I mean, does the United States really, uh, are they going to really sanction Saudi Arabia? Are they really going to sanction the Emirates? Are they they really going to cause energy crisis uh, in the world? No, they're not going to do that. If Saudi Arabia and Emirates want to invest in Syria, they're going to invest in Syria regardless of the American uh, objection. Yeah, the Syrians are betting on the ruble, they're betting on the yen. And as you mentioned, uh, Kevork, I'm sure you were talking about Charles, uh, Charles Lister from the Middle East Institute. Um, but there's also hope there because his funding comes directly from the embassy of the United Arab Emirates, the Saudi, Saudi Aramco services company, and Lockheed Martin Corporation. So this some funding will stay, but the overwhelming majority of the funding that was primarily coming from the GCC uh, I'm sure will change in the future, especially with this uh, opening up of relations and normalization in the in the in the region. So I'm hoping that Charles Lister will be out of a job soon. Yeah, he will become soon an expert on Taiwan and an expert on Ukraine. He will find something. Uh, don't worry, these people can recycle themselves everywhere. Like cockroaches surviving a nuclear holocaust. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can you guys talk about your own relationship to Syria, your personal journeys, like what your the last time you were there, where you're based, what brought you to where you're based? Yeah, I can, I can start. So Kevork and I share the same city. Uh, I grew up in Aleppo, uh, the same city Kevork came from. And uh, I grew up in Aleppo until 2014 when the, uh, the war was at its climax and uh, the siege of Aleppo started. And we essentially, at that point, we decided that we can't take it anymore. We have lost most of our savings as a family. And uh, we decided to take a risk. We smuggled ourselves with 
our dog and cat out of the Syrian held territories. We passed a free Syrian army uh, roadblock and we essentially got out. Um, and we eventually got to the States where my father had a work visa. And um, yeah, and ever since, uh, now I live in France, um, but uh, I keep going back to, the, to Syria. I have a lot of friends and family in, uh, in Aleppo and Homs and Damascus, and uh, I have hopes for the future of the country. And tell us quickly, what was Aleppo like when half of it was occupied by sectarian death squads known as rebels here in the West? Because the narrative that we got here was that the Syrian government was laying siege to Aleppo, which was fighting for its freedom. And Syria was just um, bombing it recklessly to destroy its people and defeat the resistance. So what was Aleppo actually like? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was so informative. It really was. And very grateful to them for uh, coming on with us and, and sharing all of that. And uh, it's just amazing. You know, like th there's so many rabbit holes you can go down when it comes to Syria. There's so much that's happened. And it's hard to pack it all in because there's so much deception right. around this conflict, as we talked about, that you can't cover it all. But every time... I talk about the issue. I'm just amazed at how different the reality is from the picture we get in our corporate media. Right. And people always say, listen to Syrians, but it's never Syrians like that. Syrians never, who challenge the, the dominant narrative from never, Western ever, media. ever, never, ever. And it's yeah. never the Syrians who actually live in Syria, where the majority of people live is in government controlled areas and their voices are not heard. We're only supposed to listen to Syrians who, uh, advance the regime change narrative. And it's right. similar to, to, to Iraq, right? Uh, when the U.S. wanted to regime change Iraq, you know, we heard people like Ahmed Chalabi, you know, that was right. presented to us as the voice of Iraq. It's basically people in exile who want to uh, use the U.S., get the U.S. to help them out with regime change. And then, because that also serves U.S. interests too, that's who is presented as the authentic voice of people on the ground. But the reality is right. far different. And the people Same who thing suffer, with Cuba and Venezuela, yeah. Every time. The people who suffer from U.S. policies like sanctions and dirty wars, it's not the people in power. Right. You know, As they talked about, Bashar al-Assad is fine. He's, he's living well. It's the people who suffer from these policies. The, the willingness to, to just ruin people's lives or even in some cases deprive people of life in a, in a failed uh, attempt to get rid of leaders is just unconscionable. It really is. And you know what? Let me show one more clip that we didn't get to during this interview, but just to give people a window into how U.S. officials think. This is Joel Rayburn, who was a top official for Syria under Trump. And here he is bragging back in June 2020 about how U.S. sanctions on Syria lowers the bar, in his words, uh, for the U.S. to be able to destroy Syria's economy. He's bragging about this. Sanctions normally, you know, for those who, who worked um, in, in the government have had experience with sanctions. Oftentimes there can be a very high hurdle for the evidence uh, that, you have to, uh, that you have to gather in order to uh, uh, prove legal sufficiency under certain sanctions authorities. Um, the Caesar Act really lowers the bar for us. Uh, we don't have to prove, for example, that a company that's going in to do a reconstruction project in the Damascus region um, is dealing directly with uh, the Assad regime. We don't have to have the evidence to prove that link. We just have to 
have the evidence that proves that a company or an individual is investing in that sector, in the construction sector, the engineering sector, um, most of the aviation sector, finance sector, uh, energy sector, and, and so on. And there, you know, this is what they celebrate. U.S. officials openly admit it, but then when you read about Syria in the media, if the sanctions are discussed, they're buried at the bottom or in passing, you know. But the people who actually make the policy are not shy about pointing out that their policies of sanctions destroy a country's economy after it's been through a catastrophic war. It's, you know, as as Kevork said, it's pure sadism. That is the official yeah. policy. Sociopathy, yeah. Well, thanks again so much for watching. Make sure you become members of either uh, usefulidiots.locals.com or usefulidiots.substack.com so you can watch that full interview with our guests. Also, so you can access Thursday Throwdown where we're reacting to some really interesting clips. Uh, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye, everyone. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.